0: Hear now the very word of God, as it is given to us in um, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. As it is given in the second chapter of Acts, reading only verses 23 through 24, yet we will talk about this morning all the way from verse 14 through verse 38. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, I may the Lord truly bless these words to our understanding this morning and all the words that are around them. So let's pray and ask for that illumination. Heavenly Father, we know that we are looking at one of the greatest sermons ever given by the Apostle Peter at the time of Pentecost. We know that what he's talking about is the living resurrection. And I pray that you will help me to bring that out this morning, that my words would be the words that you want me to say, that you would stand between my inadequate words and the hearing and understanding of those who have gathered here in the sanctuary and who are watching online, that, that they, they want to hear from you and not from me. So may the words that get through be your words and not mine. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a question for you this morning to start out with. On the surface, it might seem like sort of a dumb question, but stick with me. And The question is simply this. Is the resurrection to you? Is it alive or is it dead? Now... You might answer me right off the bat and say, well, of course it's alive. That's what the word resurrection means. I mean, it talks about someone rising from the dead. And if Jesus was resurrected, it talks about Jesus being risen from the dead. Well, wait a minute. That's not exactly what I'm asking. I'm not asking you you if Jesus is alive or dead. We know that he is. We will accept that as an unquestionable fact this morning that he is alive. And I'm not even asking you if you believe that he is alive enough to come and celebrate a day giving an honor of that resurrection. What I'm asking you, is the resurrection alive or dead? Now what I mean is that if the resurrection is alive in you, it will define you. It will complete you. It will empower you. It will shape your behavior and your life and the things that you do and the way that you talk and the things that you say. It is going to have a profound impact on you and your life if indeed the resurrection is alive to you. But if the resurrection is not alive to you, if it doesn't have any impact on you at all, how can you say you actually believe in the resurrection? So that's why some of the songs that we sang this morning are so appropriate because they speak of not a dead, not, a, not, not a, an event, not a holiday that we celebrate that is dead. What it speaks of is something that is alive and dynamic and has impact on us every single day. And that's the reason I've chosen this particular passage. Jesus set the scene for this. He was having an argument with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were um, arguing that there was no resurrection. And they were trying to trick Jesus up in that. And that's when Jesus said this about God. He said, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is not the God of dead things. God is the God of living things. And therefore, when we die in this world, there is a life after this. That God is the God of the living. You see, people in heaven know that. Are all the beings in heaven know that? And, and, and the passage that Stacy read you earlier at the beginning of our time of praise is, is one of my favorite of all passages in the Gospels about the resurrection. I love all of them, but I particularly love that one. So let me just kind of, even though she read it, let me just kind of go back over it again so you get the scene. It's right at dawn on Sunday morning, Easter, Resurrection Day. And a group of women are headed towards the tomb of Christ. And they have with them a big bundle of spices and perfumes and ointments. You see, what had happened is Jesus was taken down from the cross on Friday afternoon. And um, old Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, John tells us, got him down from the cross, wrapped him up and, and put some spices, treated him with some spices, but apparently not to the satisfaction of these women. So they went home that very night and they prepared spices and ointments, but then twilight came and they didn't have time to get back to the tomb. So uh, the Sabbath starts, the way Hebrews tell time, of course, is at sundown. So the Sabbath started Friday at sundown, so they have to wait until Saturday at sundown before they can do anything. They're not going to do much good, go into the tomb to anoint Jesus' body in the dark, so they wait for first thing Sunday morning. So Sunday morning, here they come to the tomb. And they get there and the stone is rolled away. And they don't know what to think. They look inside the tomb and there's no one there. And while they're trying to figure this out, two men in dazzling apparel appear. Two angels. Now here's what is happening. We're having a collision of two worlds. Okay, The angels come from heaven. The angels believe every single thing God says. His will is law. And whatever His will says, they know to be true. And here they come, and these women are coming to the tomb with ointments and spices in their hands. And with incredulity, they look at the women and say, Surely you're not here to anoint a dead body. Didn't you listen to anything that He said? Then my favorite line. Why? Do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. He is alive. And so therefore, the resurrection that we celebrate is a living resurrection. It's not a dead holiday. It's not a point in history. It is not a fable in a book. It's alive because He's alive. Unfortunately, much of the church doesn't recognize this. Literally billions of people around the world are going to gather together to celebrate Easter. But what they're doing is celebrating a dead holiday. A day that they, they come and they sing some songs, and it's all nice, you know, to sing those songs. And, uh, you know, they suffer through the sermon because that's what you have to do. But they might even get a little misty eyed when they talk about Jesus dying on the cross and his great suffering. And then a little bit of exuberance when we talk about him raising, being raised from the dead. But what a nice story, they think to themselves. What a nice holiday. What a nice fable. And then they leave, and as soon as they walk through those doors, the whole concept of the resurrection and Jesus being alive simply flushed from their minds. And they fall right back into the cesspool from which they took a short hiatus. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not the way it was in the early church. That's not the way it was for Peter or the disciples. And that's the reason I've chosen this particular passage this morning. Because we're not going to talk so much about the resurrection itself as we're going to talk about the impact of a living resurrection on people. We're going to see the impact it has at Pentecost. And don't think I've forgotten what holiday this is. I know it's Easter and not Pentecost. But everything Peter says is about a living resurrection. And therefore, I want to go through his sermon. I have to admit something to you. This is the first time in 20 years of preaching that I've actually preached someone else's sermon. It's not as bad as it sounds because the sermon I'm going to preach is Peter's sermon. Okay, and he's given to us, it's this great example, but when we look at his sermon, what we're going to see is that the resurrection formed the foundation of their faith, it formed the foundation of their doctrine, it formed the foundation of their message, it defined them, it empowered them, it drove them, it was living, it wasn't something that was dead. And that is going to come out as we look at this sermon. So let me sort of set the scene. I know that most of you know this, but let's just kind of fast forward a little bit. We're normally talking about resurrection Sunday morning, but let's go 40-something days in the future because Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Passover. That's the Penta in the Pentecost. Um, and, and so for the last 40 days, Jesus has been the risen Christ, has been revealing himself to his disciples. They've been talking about the things to come. He's been preparing them for a world where he is not there and the task that they have. And just ten days before, he took them up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And he gave them one last commission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the world. And then he ascended. I want you to visualize that in your mind. It's important. On the clouds of heaven, he ascended back to the Father. And then Daniel 7 picks up the scenario as the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven and is presented before the Ancient of Days and He is coronated King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And from there, He lives and He reigns over His kingdom. That's important because that's the Lord we serve. So anyway, that happened about 10 days before Pentecost. And on this particular day, an amazing thing happens. About 120 believers are gathered in Jerusalem. It's not sure exactly where they are. They start out in the upper room praying, and somewhere along the line, they reposition themselves into the temple courts. I happen to think that this happened in the temple. 3,000 people are going to come to know the Lord on this day, and I don't think they would fit into the upper room. And so it started out with a freight train driving right through the middle of the temple complex, or at least that's what it sounded like. The wind began to blow, and it had a sound like a hurricane. And all of a sudden, over the heads of those that were gathered there, we assume it's all 120 of them. First of all, thousands of people are packing the court of Gentiles because it was Pentecost. That's a pilgrimage feast. They're required to make the pilgrimage to um, Jerusalem. So people from all over the world are there. And tongues of fire appear over the 120 who were there. A manifestation of God that was glorious. And then they began to speak in tongues... And I don't mean the gibberish that people call speaking in tongues today. I mean languages, identifiable languages. In other words, these people were from all over the known world, and they had come to Jerusalem, and they might speak Greek, but their heart language was something else, and all of a sudden, these people began to speak to them in their own language. And do you know what they were speaking? Do you know what was coming out? And these people, don't, they don't understand the language they're speaking in. But you know what was being spoken? He's alive. A living resurrection. He's not in the grave anymore. The gospel, he came to save. And now God has raised him. So you'll know that he accomplished exactly what he said he would accomplish. And that's the scene. As this sermon begins... Because actually what happens, there's a bunch of scoffers. There are a group of scoffers. And they say, ah, uh, this is no big deal. Huh, they're just drunk. <laughs> they're, they've had too much wine. It's 8.30 in the morning. But they're drunk anyway. That's the way they interpret the manifestation of God in their midst. Oh, man, is that tragic. Here... And all the language is known to all the people in that area. The gospel is being shared and it just bounces off of them. They don't hear anything but gibberish. Jesus said this was going to happen, actually. In the book of um, uh, John, 12th chapter, we just kind of finished this. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But that's where Peter stands up, and he begins his sermon. And it's not so much, I think, in answer to those scoffers, as as it is that Peter was a master at turning a situation into a presentation of the gospel so he could talk about the resurrected Christ. And that's what he does. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 2. We're going to go back to the 14th verse. And yes, I am going to preach Peter's sermon to you with a little bit of commentary. Okay? Acts 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk. As you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Say, 30 in the morning, probably, in the time of that particular day. So these men are not drunk. And now Peter is going to tell them what is going on with them. But what he is doing is using the opportunity to tell the people who were there, the ones who are listening, you are seeing a visitation. You are seeing a powerful presentation of the eminence of God in your midst. God has come upon you. Kingdom of heaven is upon you. Far from being a dead event, far from being something that occurred and they're just leaving uh, in, in, in some kind of disgusting manner because these men are drunk. No, this is God's prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. And so he quotes the prophet Joel going on in the 16th verse. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what Peter has done is pick up a powerful and well-known Old Testament prophecy and tell them, we're not drunk. This is what Joel said was going to happen. You're seeing it come to place in front of your eyes. Now, he uses apocalyptic language to describe it, and there's probably a bit of prophetic foreshortening there where events in prophecy or in history kind of merge together. But nonetheless, he is saying the pouring out of the Spirit that you are seeing happening right now, this is God in your midst. It is far from a dead event. It's a visitation. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to point something out just in passing here. Over the last three sermons, Friday night and last Sunday, three times in a row, there has been a portion of the Scripture, and there are far different Scriptures from all different parts of the Bible, three different presentations where God has visited His people. And there has been a double-edged sword In that visitation. We talked about it at the Exodus. We talked about it with Jesus. We talked about it now with the coming of uh, Pentecost. Now when this occurs. When God visits his people. As Zechariah said in his prayer. It's a good thing for some. And it's a bad thing for others. It was good for Moses. It was bad for Pharaoh. Because when God visits a people, depending on the state of those people, depending on their hearts, depending on their obedience, depending on whether they are God's people or the enemies of God's people, it either means reward or judgment. Third time in three sermons that the Holy Spirit has brought this out to you, somebody out there needs to hear this. Okay? He doesn't do that by accident. But you see, that's exactly what's going on. God is visiting His people. He has come. Now, most of those people have missed their time of visitation. Jesus cried about that as He approached Jerusalem just before His death. Now, praise God, 3,000 people are going to hear the gospel and accept Christ as Savior on this day. But the rest of them are continuing to be scoffers. And so the presence of God at Pentecost is a judgment, just as the whole story about Jesus is a judgment. If you trust Him and believe in Him as Savior and Lord, you're saved. If you reject it, you're condemned. There's no middle ground. That's what Scripture teaches. And if you don't believe me, just listen to what Joel says, because this comes from the same... Uh, chapter that Peter just quoted. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. That's exactly where they are right now. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. That's the language of judgment. The prophetic language of Judgment. And so what we're going to see as we go through this, we're going to see it at the end of Peter's Sherman. but I'll go ahead and tell you now. The scoffers need to do something, just like everyone who is outside of God's will and obedience and accepting Christ as their Savior need to do, and that is to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, anyway, Peter, after that, goes into his central point. This is what I read you earlier. It is really the core of this particular sermon. In the 22nd verse, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God... With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. Now, what he is saying there is that Jesus authenticated himself, and by authenticating himself, he authenticated his message. Because Jesus, while he was here, did things that no one who is not working with the power of God can do. You can't walk on water on your own. You can't control the elements. You cannot raise Lazarus from the dead. Unless God is doing it, you can't raise Jairus' daughter. I heard on the radio the other day that that's not Jairus. I've been mispronouncing it for all these years. It's Jairus' daughter. Um, But he raised her from the grave. He made the blind to see. He caused the lame to walk. He cleansed the leopard. He fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread. The devil can't do that. And so therefore, he attested himself. He affirmed himself. He proved who he was. And the reason that he did it was to authenticate his message. And if you accept it, you're saved. If you reject it, you're condemned. And he goes on and he says to them that you yourselves know. You see, no one ever questioned whether or not Jesus did those mighty works. Even his enemies didn't question his miracles. They just tried to pawn it off on Satan. But again, Satan can't raise people from the dead. Well, he goes on and these next two verses are some of the most profound in, 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 in this chapter presents, but also in all of Scripture. Look in the 23rd verse. He says this This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He has two ideas that he expresses there in the same breath that just don't seem to go together. First of all, he declares God's sovereignty. His absolute unquestionable sovereignty. The reason that Jesus went to the cross, the reason he was crucified, the reason he was tortured and beaten was because it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He didn't go by accident. That was the eternal decree of God that Jesus would come and he would die on the cross. That has been God's plan of redemption since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Actually, before that, in all eternity past, Peter tells us, it was decided that Jesus would be the one, the second member of the Godhead, to become flesh, to take on the attributes of a human, to walk in our midst. That was the the plan. And so, therefore, God is completely and absolutely sovereign in that. But then he turns around in the exact same breath and says, you are culpable. You're accountable. You have the guilt, the blood of that man on your hands because you murdered him. You crucified him. You turned him over to lawless men so that he would be crucified. Now, brothers and sisters, I can't go down this trail very long because we could just stop here and have a whole other sermon on this. But what we're talking about are two rails, two parallel thoughts, two truths that scripture teaches that never cross. They never ever intersect. They are parallel, and that is that God is sovereign and you are accountable. That's Scripture teaches both of them, the sovereignty of God and the accountability of man. And the reason that that is so important is because that's the track, that's the rails upon which the train of redemption goes. And unless you have both, The sovereignty of God and the accountability of human beings. You don't need a Savior. If you have those situations where God condemns sin and you and I are culpable for our sin, then we need a Savior. That's the train of redemption. Jesus is the one who brings those two rails together. They don't come together any other way. That's why you need a Savior. Now, Peter makes that profound statement of those two truths. And then he goes on and he says, look in the 24th verse. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Notice this, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't possible. I, I, I love the intellect of a man like Dr. Sproul. I was well, just Uh, He was my professor way back when, but he he, he also has such beautiful uh, uh, discussions and things that you can see on YouTube, and I was watching one just the other night. He makes a really valid point about this. You know, people come up all the time and say, Hey, listen, don't you know anything about biology? Dead people don't get up and walk. I can't believe the whole resurrection story because he's dead. He's in the grave, right? So dead people don't rise from the grave. And Dr. Sproul looked at him and said, you have it absolutely backwards. It is impossible that the grave could have held him. Because you see, the grave is meant for sinners. God didn't make us to die. He made us to live And it was sin. The curse of sin is death. The grave is a place for sinners to go. Sinless people can't stay there. And because Jesus is sinless, the grave could never hold him. It was impossible that Jesus would remain in the grave. He had to rise because he knew no sin. Now, he became sin for us on the cross, but it wasn't his sin. It was ours. So when he goes into that tomb, he sees no corruption. And we'll see him bring that out in a little bit. This is an absolutely masterful sermon. Well, Peter does something then. He's already quoted Joel in this passage, but he's going to quote David twice. Now, unfortunately, in in his audience, those who were listening to Peter at this occasion... Um, believed with all their hearts in the authenticity of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, in our day, that has been thrown out, not just by the pagan culture, but by preachers who want you to, to unhinge the, the Old Testament. Well, tell that to Peter, tell that to Paul. Tell that to James, tell it to John, tell it to Jesus, because they all use the Old Testament extensively to make their point. So he's going to make his point using Psalm 16 that we just read a few minutes ago Responsively, Notice what he says in the 25th verse. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Brothers and sisters, that's a positively beautiful Verse. I know David predated the resurrection... I know that he's not talking about the living resurrection. But he's talking about what I mean when I ask you, is the resurrection alive for you? David lived in the presence of God. He was a man after God's own heart. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him continually. David lived in the presence of God. It defined him. It empowered him. It, it set his boundaries, but it also gave him his energy and his force. You couldn't talk about David without talking about the presence of God. Because he lived in that presence of God all his life. That's what I mean when I say, is the resurrection alive to you? Is the Lord ever before you? Because if the resurrection is alive, he's going to be ever before you. And if he's not ever before you, maybe the resurrection isn't alive for you. Well, anyway... He goes on and uh, expresses more of what David says, which is absolutely, again, glorious in the 26th verse. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, David sort of switches gears here, even as I said earlier when we read it. Obviously, he's talking about himself to begin with. Okay? He's talking about when he says, the Lord is ever before me. He's talking about his own relationship with God. But then he says something later on there in the 27th verse that cannot apply to him. He can't be talking about himself when he says that. And Peter's going to bring that out. Look in the 29th verse. Brothers... I love the way he says this. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. So here's Peter in the temple and all these people around him. And he says, okay, let's just take a field trip, right? Let's just go right down the hill, down towards the Pool of Siloam, south of here. Let's go on down there, and let's stop off on the hill of Ophel because that is where the tomb of David can be found. It's been there for over a millennia. Now, it was ransacked around 135 B.C., and Herod the Great built a marble monument over it. But there is one thing we know for absolute certain, that David went into Sheol. That's, uh, it, Hades doesn't mean hell. It's it, more along the lines of the Hebrew Sheol. That, that just means the grave. Okay, so David went into the grave, and guess what? His bones are still in there. He saw corruption. So David could not possibly be talking about himself. He could not be talking about his own body not seeing corruption. So that's David's tomb. Now, why don't we go down here a ways, west of here? Now, some people think it's north, but we won't quibble. West of here is the traditional spot because there's another tomb down there, and guess what? It's empty. There's no one in it. There's no bones in it. There's no corruption. So therefore, David's not talking about himself. David is talking about Jesus. The living resurrection. And he makes a really powerful point to the people who were there. If your hope is in David, and most of their hopes were. They were hoping for the renewal of David's kingdom. If that's where your hope is, if that's where you think you're going to find your king, then you have a dead hope. But if your hope is in Jesus, the one who was resurrected, the one who ascended, the one who was coronated, the one who reigns right now, the living resurrection, if that is where your hope is, then your hope is alive. And I can say the same thing to every single one of you. If there's anything that you've placed your hope in other than Jesus Christ, it's a dead hope. Because there's only one living resurrection. There's only one Lord. There's only one King of heaven. And it is Jesus the Christ. And he's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And if your hope is in him, it's a living hope. Because it's a living resurrection. Well, Peter points this out in the 30th verse. He explains what David did. He says, being a, therefore a prophet, David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that's Second Samuel 7, the, the, the covenant that God made with David, that one of his descendants would always be on the throne. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Like I said earlier, the reason that Jesus' flesh did not see corruption is because there was no sin in Him. There was no sin. So there's no death. There's no corruption. That's all a result of sin. That's the reason we die. That's the reasons our bodies deteriorate. Because of sin. No sin. So therefore, no corruption. Well... He then goes on and says something that would have been of the greatest significance to those who were there, unfortunately, not so much with us. Verse 32, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Once again, last thing Jesus said virtually to his disciples is you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the world. So this is exactly what Peter is doing. But what, what, what is important here and would have spoken to the people who were there is that the testimony of eyewitnesses was central to ancient um, jurisprudence. It was their forensic uh, evidence. In other words, today, we don't put so much Confidence in the testimony of witnesses because we have things like um, fingerprints, we have voice re- recognition, we have DNA, we, we have all kinds of different ways, cameras just everywhere you go to where we can verify where someone's story is true or not. And through those forensic methods, we determine guilt or innocence. Not so in the ancient world. All they had was the testimony of witnesses. You know, in the Bible, it talks about when, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You have to have witnesses in order to corroborate the truth. And that was the responsibility of the king or the elders or, or, or a judge to sit in judgment, to listen to the testimonies and to determine from those testimonies what was true. So Peter says, there's not two or three of us. There's 120 of us here. And, 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 and hundreds more elsewhere. And we all saw him. And you realize that most of them will go to horrible, torturous deaths, not denying that they saw Jesus resurrected. People don't die for things that aren't true, folks. Oh, they may say it. They may lie to gain a position. But when it comes time to die for something you know is not true, people don't die for things they know are false. So Peter says, we're witnesses, all of us here. We all can tell you that what we're seeing is true. So he goes ahead and he explains now coming back to the first question. So you think we're drunk? (laughs) No. Let me explain what's going on. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, this is Jesus he's talking about, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. He is a living, reigning king, and he has just authenticated the fact that he's alive. And everything that you're seeing in front of you is a verification of the living resurrection. Because it's Jesus who is reigning on high, the one who is accomplishing that. Then one last evidence, once again from David. This I'm switching to um, the um, 110th Psalm. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David never would have said that about a descendant. Never could have. He says to his Lord God. His Lord says to my Lord. To his Lord. David is sovereign. He's the king. No one's above him. So who is he going to call Lord unless it is the Lord? Unless it is the resurrected Christ. He's talking about a living resurrection even a millennia before it happens. As I told you earlier. When when God visits a people, it can either be a really good thing or it can be a really bad thing. And it's bad for those who are guilty. When God comes in His perfect holiness, and He confronts those who are guilty of sins against Him, it's a bad thing. that's what Peter now says to his audience. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, you have blood on your hands. In other words, you are guilty of his death, of his crucifixion, of all that went about. You are the ones who are culpable for that. Brothers and sisters, remember something that you, so are you. We're the ones who sent him to the cross, not the pagan down the street, not the one who rejects him. We are the ones with blood on our hands, his blood, because he died for our sins. He died so that we might be forgiven. He died so that we would be atoned for, so that we could wear His righteousness, so that we could stand before a holy God and join Him in heaven forever. He died for us, so every single one of us is guilty of the blood of Christ. But Praise God. That was His plan all along. It was done according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God. From all eternity past. He said my son will go to the cross. And he will spill his blood. For the redeemed. Those that he came to atone for. And then he will ascend into heaven. And then he will be coronated. And from there he will reign. Because he's alive. This is the reason most people. Don't want to believe this. Because if you believe in the true resurrection, then you have to accept your guilt. You have to accept the fact that you're condemned. And this is something that is unpalatable to most people. We don't want to accept that. I don't like that. It makes me feel bad, okay? I'd rather just stick my head in the sand and not worry about it for the rest of my life. But sooner or later, there's going to come a reckoning. And at that time, all the good deeds that you've done will be like filthy rags before the Lord. The only thing that will count is that train riding on those two rails that we talked about. Is Jesus your Savior and do you believe in Him as Lord and Master of your life? This is the impact that this message had on those who were listening to Peter. And they cried out, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What can we possibly do? Well, let me tell you something. There's one word. I've already given it to you. If you miss your time of visitation and you unjustly condemn the Son of God when He comes to save you and you turn Him over to lawless men to be... Tried and condemned and beaten and mocked, and then carry a cross through town and then nailed to that cross and brutally crucified and killed and thrown into a tomb. If that is what you are guilty of, then there's something you need to do. Peter says it in the last verse. Peter said to them, Repent. That's the word metanoia. Repent. Turn around. Turn from those sins and turn to Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That means you'll be saved. That means you'll be regenerated. That means you'll be redeemed. That means that what Jesus did on the cross will count against your guilt and against your sins. But brothers and sisters, before we talk about the love of God, before we talk about mercy, before we talk about grace, before we talk about how wonderful Jesus is or how great heaven is, we need to start with that word. Repent. Because your sins will condemn you. And unless those sins are forgiven, then you'll stay condemned. And the only one who can forgive them is Jesus Christ. It just makes sense. That's the reason God raised him from the dead. So you would know that what he came to do, he did. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. When the disciples say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, they mean it. Stepping back from this just a little bit. There's a progression that I want to kind of leave you with. I know that several of us, we talk about this, we're, we're sort of getting into the Puritans, realizing that the Puritans have been given such a bad rap by history that really they were beautiful Christians. that They loved the Lord and they, they lived a life of, of, of godliness and wanting to be close to the Lord. But I heard just the other day on a documentary that what set the... Puritans apart so much from the rest of of Christendom, from the other revivals that have occurred. is the same thing that we said about David. The Lord was ever before them. They recognized that, that this world was not all that there is and that there's another dimension and the dimension is right here. The dimension is not something that is far off. And so, therefore, they lived in the presence of a living resurrection. It was alive to them. It, it governed their lives and their behavior. As I said, unfortunately, we see that the church around us is not doing so. So, brother and sister, let me see if I can make a logical argument for you. And please listen to me. Even if you have flushed everything I've said before now, please listen to this if the resurrection is alive to you, then the ascension will be alive to you. You'll know that because he was raised from the dead that, just like the Bible says, he ascended into heaven on the clouds. If the ascension is alive to you, then the coronation will be alive to you. Go back and read Daniel 7. He talks about Son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and being given a kingdom that will last forever and extend to all the universe. This is the Lord Jesus he's talking about. If the ascension is alive to you, the coronation will be alive to you. And if the coronation is alive to you, the fact that he lives right now and reigns and rules as master and king of kings and lord of lords of all that there is, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't change it. If the coronation is alive to you, you know that you have a king. How on earth can you know you have a king and not serve him? How on earth can you know that you have a king and then be so wrapped up in the things of this world you never give him any credence, you never praise him, you never thank him? You don't do his will, it's not even important to you. Now I know that some of you have trouble with this, imagining this. I have for years. I, I, I have a difficulty in envisioning heaven. It, it, it's something that is, that is far away. It, it is something that I try as best as I can to get my mind around it. I don't think we're actually supposed to get our minds around it, but I try to get our minds around it, and I just can't do it. And, and it was some time back that my wife Kay sort of opened up her view of heaven, and, and, and that has stuck with me. You see, we and the Scripture says heaven is the heavens. I mean, it's above there. You read what C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, and they get on a bus, and they go on this long trip to go to heaven. So heaven is always someplace way off, and she says, that's not the way I see heaven. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. It's right there. Our sinfulness keeps us from seeing it, but it's right there. That looks like a brick wall, but it's not. It's just a veil. And the kingdom of heaven is in our midst. And the kingdom of darkness fights against it. And a spiritual warfare is all around us. But the kingdom of heaven is right there. We are in the presence of God. And that's what I mean. If you understand what I mean by is the resurrection alive to you. It means do you recognize that Jesus is king of kings. And he rules now. And he calls you into obedience. So that you will be his people and he will be your God. That's what the living resurrection means. So if you believe in a living resurrection, brothers and sisters, Jesus is going to be your Lord and master. If Jesus is not your Lord and master, I don't care if you've walked down the aisle, if you said a prayer, if you grew up in the church, if you've been baptized. If Jesus is not your Lord and master, then you have to ask yourself, do you actually believe? And the resurrection. Paul said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He's talking about the living resurrection. Both of those things, you will be saved. Walking down the aisle and confessing is not enough. Is the resurrection real to you? So I leave you with that question. Is the resurrection alive as far as you are concerned? Or is it dead? And if it is dead, I have another question for you. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by your plan of redemption, your son, his kingdom. We are subjects of that kingdom. We cannot even imagine how glorious that kingdom is. We get glimpses of it here and there. And I think Peter gives us a glimpse of that. And I pray that that glimpse has been imprinted on the minds of those who listen. And Lord, we will give you the glory for that because it is your Holy Spirit that does that illumination. We ask it in the name of our resurrected, ascended, coronated, and reigning Jesus Christ. Amen.